My name is Matt, one of the pastors here. And um, anyone still have their Christmas lights on, on their house? I'm with you. I got them down yesterday, so still got the tree up in the house. So I don't know if anyone else is tracking, but um, I don't know. I don't want it to end. Anyway, we are kicking off our series called 2020 Kingdom Vision. And we we chose 2020 because 2020 is both perfect eyesight, perfect vision, but it is also representative of the year 2020, which will be fast approaching. And we are really trying to lay out what are the things that are going to define us? What are the things that we're going to strive after? What are the things that we're going to ask God to do in our midst by the end of 2020? And uh, for, uh, for that direction, we are not just looking to ourselves and our own plans. We are looking to what Jesus has to say in his word. And what better place to look than the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And here we see in these chapters a vision from the mouth of Jesus that is completely different than any other vision any human being has ever put forward. And Jesus is putting forward this vision of what it looks like when the spirit of the living God invades the life of a human being. When the spirit of God invades the life of the church, what happens? What does it look like? And as we'll see and continue to see, Jesus so masterfully in his teaching communicates in such a way that is so countercultural, it's so intriguing and seemingly paradoxical. Because everything we're going to learn about the kingdom of God from his perspective is upside down and counterintuitive to the way humanity is prone and wired to think. And we introduced this summary statement last week, and, and we're, we're praying. We, we believe this is really a summary of the Sermon on the Mount, but this is, this is how we want to be directed as a church, and it's this, is that uh, we want to be becoming a community to reach a community. Becoming the community that God has called us to become as a church in order to reach the community in which he has placed us. And today we're going to look at what uh, Jesus defines as the ethos of a blessed community. Anyone know the word ethos? Nobody? Come on, a couple people? Come on. All right, all right. All the Bible scholars just raised their hand. Congratulations. So an ethos is uh, the character or the disposition of a community. It is the agreed upon values that define and direct everything that you do. That's what the ethos is. So country clubs and so secret societies have ethoses. And those are typically like, hey, we're like rich. We're high society. It's, that's what we have in common. And so, you know, we think highly of ourselves. Like we're the elite, okay? But here's Jesus. He's going to describe the ethos of what is a spiritually blessed, kingdom-minded community. And as we discussed last week, each of the Beatitudes starts with this word blessed. And I don't know what comes into your mind when you hear the word blessed, but what Jesus is talking about is not based on our temporal circumstances or the possessions in which we have. Being blessed in God's eyes is having the sure knowledge that you are approved by God, that you are in right standing with God relationally that you are known by God and that you know God. That's what it means 
to be blessed. And the main idea in your notes today is this. There is no greater blessing than relational unity with God through Christ. And I wonder as, if I, as I read that to you this morning, do you find yourself believing that? Do you really believe that? Do you believe the greatest blessing in all the universe is relational unity with God through Christ? I want you to kick that around today. So we're going to read through the first six Beatitudes to learn from Jesus and what he says, how we become a blessed community. So Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 3. Jesus says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I don't know about you, but reading through that, I'm just like, okay, overload. Like, we need to break down each one of these things. Jesus, what in the world are you talking about? So I can imagine for the original listeners, they're just kind of having their minds blown. Like, whoa, slow down. Explain what you're saying. And what we find with the Beatitudes, we're actually going to see the Beatitudes uh, unpacked by Jesus as we continue to look at Matthew chapter 5, 6, and chapter 7. The Beatitudes is kind of like an introduction of, hey, Here's, here's what I want you to know, and then I'm going to explain it in, in depth a little bit later. But what I want to do this morning is break down these Beatitudes into two primary categories, and you have these in your notes. The first one is this, is having a blessed perspective of ourselves. Okay, Jesus is, is paving the way of what it means to have a blessed perspective of ourselves and who we are. And secondly, what is it to have a blessed pursuit of God. So if you're a note taker, your notes are officially completely filled in now. <laughs> Congratulations, you can put your pens down. Here we go. All right, so a blessed perspective of ourselves. Isn't it interesting how each of us will naturally believe the best about ourselves and our own motives, and yet we will quickly look to everyone else and question them? Anyone have that problem? No? No honest people in this room. Okay. <laughs> Well, Jesus has some words for that later. We'll get there. All right. We, we just live in this culture. It tells us, hey, trust yourself. Follow your heart, but don't trust anybody else. Isn't that interesting? Fascinating. We're not prone to question our own motives, but we easily question the motives of others. And, it, and as Jesus teaches through these first three Beatitudes, I think we're going to be confronted with our own hypocrisy, and he's going to force us to look into the mirror of our own spiritual life in light of who God is in not comparing ourselves to others around us. You see, that's our human problem, right, is, is we want to compare ourselves to other people to make ourselves feel good. Jesus saying, no, 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 look to me. You answer to me. Don't look at anybody else, look to me. And last week we looked at verse three and Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So the starting point we see to receiving God's kingdom is an acknowledgement of our own spiritual poverty. Do you believe yourself 
to be in a state of spiritual poverty on your own. Jesus is telling us that it is the broken who are blessed. It is those who are poor who are actually rich. And it's only when we come to a place of realizing our insufficiency in our own weak, pathetic efforts of spirituality that we come to this place of being poor in spirit. It's only when we recognize I don't have what it takes for God to approve of me. Have you been there? The promise of those who come to that place is that they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And what that means is salvation belongs to those who know they don't deserve it. And that's good news for every human being on the planet. But here's the thing. It is possible for you to confess your spiritual poverty and yet stay indifferent about your condition. You can say, sure, I'm messed up. Sure, I'm not spiritual. Sure, whatever. That's where this next beatitude comes into play. Verse four, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. It's important to recognize that the mourning Jesus is talking about here is not mourning over the hardships of life. It's not mourning over the loss of loved ones. It is mourning over the reality of one's own personal sin. Evidence of true salvation is coming to the place where you are broken. And as we sang the song, you see that you are a wretch. And you actually feel bad about it. It actually breaks you inside. There is remorse and mourning over your sin. And, and I loved what Ken Hughes said in his commentary. He said this, in matters of spiritual life and health, mourning is not optional. Spiritual mourning is, is necessary for salvation. No one is truly a Christian who has not mourned over his or her sins because you cannot be forgiven if you are not sorry for your sin. If you're not sorry for the things you've done that have been an offense against God, you don't see your need for forgiveness. You don't feel the weight of your sin and the gravity that that sin separates you relationally from God. And that should create a deep mourning in our hearts and we should feel the need to be forgiven. One thing Cheryl and I have tried to get in the habit of doing and maybe you've been the recipient of this is we try to ask people this question, especially if we've just met you. It's a, good, uh, it's a good opener, so follow me here. We say, so when did you experience brokenness over the reality of your sin? You know, a lot of us, when we share our testimony about how we come to Jesus, you know, it's, 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 pretty, it's a pretty beautiful story, which it is. But unless you see the dark part of the story, the light is not light. And so to answer that question, I think it is really to have experienced this type of mourning that Jesus says, hey, you're blessed when you mourn. Because when, when you realize that you have a need for forgiveness and when you look upon the cross of Jesus Christ and you say, I need that. That's where heart transformation comes. And that's where the gospel actually becomes precious to a person. 
The gospel is not good news unless you understand the bad news of what your sin has done. Now we need to realize this is kind of interesting language because Jesus is saying blessed are those who mourn. In essence, happy are those who mourn. And we're just sitting here like, okay. Um, but here's the deal. Is that mourning in itself is not a joyful experience, nor is Jesus teaching that it's a joyful experience. But he is saying that if you've mourned, if you've seen your sin rightfully, you're blessed because you're seeing yourself through the lens of God, through the lens of his word. And you're being brought to a place of faith and repentance where eternal life is found. And the accompanying promise to those who mourn is this, that they will be comforted. That word uh, comfort is the same word to describe the Holy Spirit. Okay, He is the comforter. And our comfort in the midst of our mourning our own sin comes from the personal presence of God. You will find no other comfort in your mourning than from the hand of God being placed upon your shoulder to know that he is by your side and that through Christ he holds not one of those sins, past, present, or future, against you. You are his son. You are his daughter. God's comfort is relational. And if we've mourned our sin, we are blessed because we've seen our need for forgiveness and we've reached out to God asking for it. And the reality of this forgiveness will produce something in us. And I believe that's what we find in our next beatitude. It will lead us to meekness. Jesus says this, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Now that word meek means gentle means humble, means considerate, means courteous. The American culture is, is pretty much the opposite of meek, okay? The American way is uh, blessed are the strong and driven. Blessed are those who know what they want in life and go out and take it. Jesus says the opposite. But I think we have a misunderstanding in the church of what meekness actually is. I think many people see this call to be meek and they think, oh, well, I need to be shy. I need to be timid. I need to tiptoe around things and uh, I, I, just, I just need to be a pushover and let people walk all over me. That's what it means to be meek. Well, that's a wrong understanding of meekness. Meekness is actually rooted in strength. Follow me here. One commentator said, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is simply strength under control. In Galatians chapter five, Paul lists out the fruit that God's spirit produces within the life of the believer. If the spirit of the living God is in you, it's going to manifest. He's going to manifest in a variety of ways. And the last one on the list is self-control. Okay, But in the original language, there, there is no self there. It's simply control. And so as you think about that, a fruit of the Spirit is actually being controlled by the Spirit. That's a fruit of the Spirit. It's he is controlling. He is directing your life. And if you're controlled by him, 
If you're seeking to please God, you don't have to go around trying to prove yourself to other people. Therefore, you can be meek. You can be humble. You can say, hey, I'm seeking to walk with God. I don't need other people to affirm my value. I don't need other people to uh, to try to make me feel good about myself. I have the approval of God. And my desire now is to walk in his ways, not my own. Walk for and live for his kingdom and not my own. And R.T. Kendall said, the greatest liberty is having nothing to prove. How much of your life is driven by trying to prove something to someone? How much is trying to prove your worth motivate the things that you do and the way that you live? You see, when we are meek, we don't have to prove ourselves to anybody. And then it puts us in a position to freely give ourselves away in sacrificial love towards others. It's not hard to talk to a meek person. If you, if you are a meek person, you're approachable. There's nothing about you that gives across an elite arrogance that just makes people like, oh, I, I can't talk to them. And Jesus was the perfect example of meekness. As we see in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, he said this, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's an easy yoke when you know you don't have to prove anything to anybody. Meekness comes from approaching Jesus, learning from him as he himself was meek and gentle. And think about that for a minute. This is the king of heaven we're talking about. This is the one with all power and all authority. And he's saying, come to me. Come. I'm approachable. Come to me. I'm going to give you rest. What I say about you matters more than anything else. And I've made the way for you to be able to come to me. I've opened the door of relationship to you. And so, the meek person is one who is controlled by the Holy Spirit. The meek person is one that has a heart that genuinely cares and a humility that makes others comfortable opening up to them about just, to, about, just about anything. And the promise of the meek is that they will inherit the earth. One day, Jesus promises to return and to make all things new, and that includes this planet. He's going to renew everything, and the promise here is that the meek will inherit the land where Jesus is the reigning king. Those who have come to Jesus, taken his yoke upon themselves. So this is a summary of the first Beatitudes and the blessed perspective that Jesus is painting for his people. This this is the way that every person who associates with, with Christ should think about themselves. This is the starting point to being the community that Jesus wants us to become. And then the next three Beatitudes, I believe there's a shift 
And we shift from Jesus telling us how he wants Christians to think about themselves to the things he wants his followers to pursue with their lives. And it starts with verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So Jesus is like the total master of using common things to, to draw metaphors and analogies that, that connect with humanity, right? So, so here, the most basic of all needs that every single person has experienced, hunger. Every single person has experienced thirst. And everybody knows what it's like to have the satisfaction of having that hunger, that thirst satisfied, right? Tracking? Everyone in this room, Jesus just brought you in. And he's saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness is perfect virtue. It is blamelessness. And there is only one person who has ever lived who has been righteous. 1 John 2.1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus Christ is the only righteous one who can make any human being righteous. That is what, it, what, what happens when we come to, to Christ by faith, when we believe in his life, his death, and his resurrection on behalf of our sin, not only are we forgiven, but we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at you, he no longer sees a wretch. He sees a saint. He sees his child. He sees his beloved. If your faith is in Christ, you are clothed in his righteousness, whether you feel it or not. For righteousness only comes through faith. But once our faith is in Christ, we're regenerated, we're renewed by this power of the Holy Spirit within us. And you know what the Spirit does? He now gives us the desire to live for righteousness. He puts the desire in us. He puts that hunger and thirst within us so that we will chase hard after Jesus and pursue a relationship with God through him. Many in this room know the joy in the life that comes from knowing God. And God has blessed each of us through Christ that now we can open and understand God's word. That we can feed upon God's word. That we can know God through talking to him in prayer. We can praise God with our, our lips and we can obey God through our deeds. And this one beatitude for me, I, uh, this, is, this is the deepest desire and prayer of my heart for us as a church over this next year, is that we would be a people that hunger and thirst for Jesus. That's the starting point. If we're going to do anything of value in this world, if we're going to do anything of eternal consequence, it's going to flow from our pursuit and our relationship with Christ. We talked last week about how we want to see 100 people come to know and follow Jesus by the end of 2020. 
And we talked about how if every single person in this room were to reach one person for Christ, that would be a reality. And yet, I want to argue and I want to submit to you that unless we are a people who are hungering and thirsting for Jesus himself, we are never going to tell other people about it. You instinctively talk about what you love, right? It really doesn't take long to figure out what people love. Just start asking them questions. It's going to come out. You can't help talk about what you love. And so if our hearts don't start here, if we don't start by fixing our eyes on Jesus and loving him and pursuing a relationship with him above all else, everything from this point on really doesn't matter because people are not going to see our love. People are not going to see the life that Christ has promised. And here's the thing, that Jesus promises us something in this verse. He says that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be what? Satisfied. That's a promise. You will be satisfied. You come after me, you're going to find me. Seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Anyone out there have a Costco membership? I do. Right on. The reason I have a Costco membership is because they give away free food, right? Samples. And, uh, you know, we, we always go to Costco, and you try to time it right around lunch, you know, so that you get the samples. And uh, you, you get to go around and taste all these little delicious morsels that they're trying to get you to buy. And uh, oftentimes, when with my kids, you know, we'll circle around a couple times, and we'll just say, well, that was lunch, and then we go home. But budget that into our, our meal budget there. But here's the, here's the deal. In my experience of the Christian life and with my walk with God, I feel like you, you get samples of God every day. As you open God's word, as, as you pursue him, you're getting a taste of relationship with God. But you always know there's more of God to be had. You taste and you see and you say, this is awesome. I want more. You, you know the depths of relationship with God could never be exhausted. But here's the reality is we have to intentionally go to the table and partake in order to be satisfied, in order to get a taste of who God is. We, we have to come to him. We have to come to his word because his word is a feast for our souls. And as his word says, taste and see God is good. Knowing God is life and joy and peace and hope. But we have to come and we have to consume Jesus is the only one who can save and satisfy our souls. He is the only one who can meet your deepest longings and your deepest desires. That's truth this morning, whether you believe that or feel that or not. That is true. And eternal life, everlasting life will be found in the presence, the unhindered presence of King Jesus for all eternity. Therefore, 
Happy are those now who pursue and prioritize the relationship with Jesus. Here's the funny thing about getting to know Jesus is that the closer you get to him, the closer you get to perfection, the more you see your own imperfection. <laughs> it's funny how that works, isn't it? This isn't intended to make us feel bad about ourselves. The, the intent of this is actually a sign of spiritual maturity. When we feel like we are imperfect before God, it's, it's not to, to make us feel like we're a lost cause. It's a part of the process of becoming more of who Jesus wants us to become because he keeps us humble all the while. Could you imagine if you, just, if you didn't struggle with sin anymore? You'd be so proud. You'd be looking at anyone who struggled with sin and say, what is your problem? And I think part of this Jesus is, is showing us is as we pursue him, as we recognize uh, over time how much greater his grace and his mercy is, it leads us to becoming more gracious and merciful people. Hence, verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Those who are merciful are those who are able to forgive, those who are able to overlook an offense. Mercy by its own definition is withholding what is rightfully deserved. And when we recognize the daily mercies we receive from Jesus Christ through the gospel, the only right response is to become more of a merciful person. An Old Testament example of this is Joseph. I love the story of Joseph. We named our son Joseph. But Joseph was uh, the youngest brother at the time. And his brothers were envious of him because he, he, he was shown favor by his father. And in their jealousy, the brothers basically throw Joseph in a pit and leave him for dead. They say, hey, be, we're sick of you. Be gone. And the only reason Joseph's life is spared is because there's a caravan of slave traders coming by. And the brothers are like, well, Let's not let him die. Let's just sell him into slavery. That'll teach him. So Joseph is sold into slavery and he's brought into the land of Egypt. And through just some crazy circumstances, God elevates Joseph to the second in command of all of Egypt. This is like the empire of the world at that time. And Joseph is number two. And Joseph has this dream that there's going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And he tells his dream to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, do something about it. Prepare us for this. This would destroy us. This would decimate us as a people, so do something. So Joseph puts together a plan on how to store up while the getting is good, and he builds huge storage bins for all the wheat and everything they need for food. 
And sure enough, seven years later, the famine strikes. And the whole region is impacted by this. And everyone is coming to Egypt for food, which just so happens to include Joseph's brothers. And can you imagine being Joseph? And here your brothers come to you in desperation because they're starving. And you're face to face with those who tried to leave you for dead, but who sold you into slavery. Talk about an opportunity for revenge. Talk about an opportunity to say, well, learn your lesson. Go home. No food. But that's not what Joseph did. Joseph, upon seeing his brothers, was absolutely broken in his heart for them. And he goes on to show them incredible mercy and makes an incredible display of spiritual maturity. And we find the, the summary of his understanding in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where Joseph says this to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. A community that is becoming more like Jesus lives with the reality that you know you're going to hurt others around you. We're going to sin against each other. That's going to happen. That's like guaranteed. But what are we going to do when that happens? Are we going to go eye for an eye? Or are we going to be merciful, gracious, forgiving to one another? Here's the thing that I've learned about mercy in my own life is that it protects my heart from bitterness. When I release other people from grievances that they've had against me, it protects my heart from becoming bitter and calloused. And everyone in this room knows what it's like to be around a bitter, callous person. There's no life there. There's no joy there. There's no peace there. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. To be pure in heart means that you are completely committed to God and his ways. It means that you are in your heart of heart, your sincere motive is rooted in devotion to Jesus Christ. So again, to put ourselves in, in the seat of the original audience here, we, we need to realize just how crazy this beatitude would have been. You see, they were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. They were familiar with passages like Jeremiah 17, 9 that said this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? What? So in order to be blessed, I have to have a pure heart? How is that possible? And to make matters worse, it says, yeah, and those who have a pure heart get to see God. For the Jew, that was not like something they were thinking about wanting. Okay? They weren't like, man, I just want to see God today. Their understanding in the Old Testament is those who see God die. <laughs> and so here's Jesus saying, blessed are the pure in heart, which none of you have, and you will see God, which in your understanding means that you'll die. 
Think about, like, this is, this is what's going on in their mind. They're like, Phew. You can just imagine their anticipation of, okay, Jesus, explain what you're talking about. And this is where the promise found in Ezekiel 36, 26, I think becomes so important and so critical for us, and it's this. It says, I will give you, God speaking, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Jesus is revealing that the human problem is that we need new hearts. Our hearts are like stone. They're cold and they're lifeless. This is the human condition that every single human is born into. We, we have a spiritual cancer that only Jesus has the cure for. And he didn't come to make bad people better. He came to bring dead people back to life. This is huge. And Jesus himself, the one teaching that you must be pure of heart, is the only way to purity of heart. And it's kind of ironic because they're sitting there looking at God face to face. You notice that? They're actually seeing Jesus in this moment. They're looking at God. And he's saying, I'm the only way to make your heart pure. I'm the only one that can change what's wrong with you on the inside. Not through behavioral modification, but through heart transformation. We talk about this a lot. This is God's gift of salvation. It's a transformed life that only comes by faith in Jesus Christ, through whom then the Spirit of God is deposited into our hearts, eternally changing us and giving us new life in Him. And the promise is that we get to see God. In the New Testament, we're told that we see God through our love for one another. As, as we grow in our love for one another, God manifests himself. We, we see it. We say, that's God. But we also have the hope and the promise of a future where we get to be in the throne room, where we get to behold Jesus on his throne, where we get to gaze into his face and be overwhelmed by the presence of our Savior. Well, we started by saying there's no greater blessing than relational unity with God through Christ. And Jesus is laying that foundation of, of how we enter into that blessing, how we enter into that relationship. And as, as we as a church, if we are going to be a blessed community and become the things that Jesus wants us to become, it's going to start with each of us having a right perspective of ourselves. Look in the mirror of God's word. Everyone, we each have to look in the mirror of God's word and be honest about who we are, and that should bring us to a place of great humility. But then if we're going to experience the blessings of knowing God and being transformed on a regular basis by the power of his spirit, we're going to need to pursue the things that he tells us to pursue. We're going to need to actually go to the well of life that he tells us to go to. And we can encourage each other towards that end so that we can experience a life 
that Jesus has given to us. Let's pray.